The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. morning. The other day I was reading a newspaper article about a man in China who's 106 years old, and his name is Mr. Zhao, same Zhao as Zhao Enlai. There was a picture of him at work, sitting at, first I was looking at it and I was thinking, what is that? And then I remembered, oh, that's a typewriter. (laughs) Raised up keys, kind of on an angle. Not the old-fashioned, you know, royal, but more modern. In the article it said, he can't, use a computer because the screen hurts his eyes. And this Mr. Zhao was the inventor of the system of putting Chinese characters into romanization that we could pronounce called pinyin. So closer than the Wade, how do you say Wade Guile? Giles system, which, uh, for example, would have Huang Po for what is now pronounced Wang Bo in uh, Pinyin. Many, many times when we are trying to go from the Japanese pronunciation to the Chinese, we go and look up the word, the name, and it will show the way Giles and the pinion both, and they're quite different in many cases. You may not know to look under a Z, for example. You may be looking under a CH or something. So this man, Mr. Zhao, was the inventor of the pinion system, but hardly anybody knows him. He lives in almost total obscurity, seems that he was the son of an intellectual couple. They were well off. And then during the years of tumult, especially cultural revolution in China, there was a lot of persecution, as you know. And he was forced to give up his studies and go into the fields as a laborer and lost his lost his, mm, what we might call, fervent support of Mao in the process, and still believed strongly in his country's evolution. But basically, when people celebrate the Pinyin 
system they don't know about him. And this article talked about how he lived in such equanimity, still still alive and healthy, that things come and go, things in his life have been so extreme, we can't even imagine. We think each one of us has had a very, perhaps, difficult period from time to time looking back or very strong changes have occurred in our lives and maybe we have felt disrupted by them. Anybody feel like you've gone through disruptive times in your life? And we can't even imagine what it was like to live through this period in China, right? I'm sure you have relatives who remember what that was like. So this great civilization, this great Chinese civilization goes back one of the most profoundly developed and realized civilizations in the world. We look at Tang Dynasty China when Zen was in its most glorified, highest, the pinnacle of Chao, of Chan, Zen in China pronounced Chan. And some now we go to look at the work of someone like Andy Ferguson or Red Pine, Bill Porter, looking at their work and their travels in China and the way people are now trying to mm, restore those great teachers' temples and interview and understand the old hermits who are basically like Mr. Zhao, ignored the ups and downs, the travails of their country and just going within to truly practice this Buddha Dharma. So I was very moved by reading about him and thinking about when we don't get caught up, we may be forced to do this or that by changing governments or economics in our lives. But when we don't get stuck in the outer form, how happiness, true happiness, true equanimity is our birthright. In an article that came out in this issue of National Wildlife called Healing Gardens about how many Areas in our urban communities are so filled with gun violence and littering and crime. And one woman in North Hartford, Connecticut, in an area like that, just decided that she would grow a garden. She didn't know anything about gardening, 
She said she didn't know a pansy from a marigold, but she started creating a garden, and she took down her chain-link fence in doing so, and her neighbors said, oh, that's really a bad idea. You're going to really see an increase in crime, and she said, no, I'm not going to keep that chain-link fence up. People started looking at her garden, and before long, she helped some of her neighbors create gardens in their yards. More fences came down, and the crime incidents just went down along with the fences. It seems that there's been research done about how the environment and the greening of our cities affects our minds. Isn't that an astonishing thing? In this research, two people from the University of Illinois did a study called Attention Restoration Theory. Now, all of you know about attention deficit. Think about it. Attention restoration. That's what we're doing here. Andrea Faber-Taylor, one of the researchers, said, we only have a finite capacity for effortful attention. By making yourself stay on task, you can become fatigued, irritable, and eventually less productive. Many times people say, I can't go to the Zendo because I've got to accomplish this and that and the other thing, right? Maybe you've even said that yourself. Well, I'll have to take today and just complete this project, right? And what happens? You become fatigued, irritable, and eventually less productive, right? She says, things in nature, insects, birds, moving tree leaves, flowing water, fire, are naturally fascinating to us because as humans evolved, those who paid attention to these things were better able to survive. We are calmed and our directed attention is restored by green spaces because viewing them is a gently engaging experience. So in other words, by having attention that is not effortful, that is not directed toward an outcome, a goal, just what we do in Zazen, right? Pay attention. People say when they're beginning, pay attention to what? How many floorboards are in front of you? No. Letting it all go. Being in 360 degrees of pure, lucid awareness. A very different thing from attention that is directed toward something, some product, right? So, as you know, we have many, many problems right now with young people who are given attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. And of course, obesity and diabetes incidents going up, going up, going up. Why do you think that is? Is it because of inoculations? Some people have 
surmised, must be that. Is it because of something else? Why do you think it is? I'm sure you've been wondering. So much artificial stimulation. So much artificial stimulation. Where? In media and just all around. Where do people spend most of their lives? In front of a screen. Right? Even outside, you see people walking their dogs. (laughs) But at least they're outside. (laughs) Even though their eyes are focused on this narrow, directed attention to the smartphone. Smartphone. Yeah. Much better word, cell. Carry ourselves with us everywhere. We are enslaved by this kind of... They found out in um, some research that United States children spend an average of more than seven hours in front of electronic media per day and as little as four to seven minutes in unstructured play outdoors. Now that, in itself... Okay, ADHD, well, yeah. Obesity, probably. Doesn't matter what you eat. If you don't expend any energy, if you're not outside feeling, you know, if everyone is in virtual reality, all but seven minutes of the day. So the consequences of this nature deficit disorder right? It's not ADHD. Nature deficit disorder, as author Richard Lauf called it in his 2005 book, Last Child in the Woods, includes childhood depression, asthma, vitamin D deficiency, type 2 diabetes, and a host of other ailments. So now doctors are starting to write prescriptions for decreased screen time and one to two hours of unstructured outdoor play. In other words, not that directed play, not in order to win the trophy for your school and your sport team, but whatever, you know, unstructured. This is very difficult for people. The U.S. National Park Service is encouraging doctors to write park prescriptions. Imagine we have to be told by our doctor writing a prescription to go outside and just take a walk. Not a walk to identify how many birds, you know, have this or that. We're not looking at particular plants and making a list. Just walking. But this goes against what we are taught, which is that everything you do should have what? A function, right? Should be tied into some sort of willed outcome, right? I'm doing this in order to dot, dot, dot. This is a sickness. And when we sit, we can feel how restorative it is not to be 
channeled always toward what we think we need to accomplish. Even people bring that attitude toward their sitting. You know, is this, am I doing it right in order to dot, dot, dot? No, no, there are no dots. It's open-ended. To realize our open-ended mind, this is to awaken. And immediately we think, to awaken to what? What's the meaning of what I'm doing? So Master Rinzai says, no meaning. No meaning to Bodhidharma's coming to the West. No meaning. This evening, we will meet again to look into Master Rinzai's teachings, Dharma study. And we will read this passage. Followers of the way, it is extremely difficult to cultivate sincere aspiration. Why? Because we think we have to cultivate it. This is one of the problems with words, right? We hear that and we think, well, what should I do to cultivate? Sincere aspiration. Buddha Dharma is subtle and profound. Nevertheless, it is possible to attain a fair amount of understanding. All day long, this mountain monk is talking openly. But you monks don't pay any attention. By that, he doesn't mean attention to what I say. He means this undifferentiated awareness. Attention. throughout. 1,000 times, 10,000 times your feet tread on it, yet you are still in the darkness of ignorance. Everywhere we go, we cannot help it. We're already, this path is right under our feet. We don't have to search for it. If we do, we think it's elsewhere. It has no form, yet distinctly shines alone. Always shining. You students don't have sufficient faith and search for understanding in names and phrases. For half a century you go on like that, carrying dead bodies on your shoulders, running everywhere under heaven with your carrying poles and bags. The day will come when you will be asked to pay for the straw sandals you have worn out. Virtuous monks, when this mountain monk says, there is no dharma outside, you students don't get it and try to find it within. There's a uh, wonderful book by... Hisamatsu called Critical Sermons of the Zen Tradition. About this outside. 
No matter how much we seek it outside ourselves, we will only become eternally busy thinking it's somewhere to find, busily running around looking for the right way to find it. Just become eternally busy and exhausted, right? Just what was said about the day in and day out searching for what we think we need. It isn't found outside us, but inside. Though we look all around outside ourselves, we are endowed with it all along, Hisamatsu says. It is our original face. Your feet tread on it, Rinzai says, yet you are still in the darkness of ignorance. This it. Now about this inside, Hisamatsu says, this term often appears in the Rinzai, Roku, and other Zen texts where we are told not to look outside ourselves. But if we should search internally, inside will be external to us as well. We can do this too, make what is alive within ourselves dead, something that we are searching for, therefore separating from, right? Rinzai isn't discussing inside and outside in the usual sense. Inside is right here. Thing itself, the self itself is the inside. It is an inside without inside or outside. It is neither inside nor outside nor in the middle. Inside, outside, and the middle are all external. And that which does not have an inside, outside, or middle, a place that is neither inside nor outside nor in the middle, that is the true inside. That is what is meant by the expression, do not look outside. Thus Rinzai admonishes us, stop the mind that searches everywhere. Of course, logically, none of that can be grasped, right? Logically, inside, outside, middle, all of it is frustrating to the rational mind that depends on being able to locate that which is inside, that which is outside, and that was that which is in the middle. Shodo Harada in Moon by the Window has this beautiful calligraphy of the most famous saying of Master Rinzai, which is, be master wherever you go. Then wherever you are, things are as they truly are. And he says, this is the most famous verse of the record of Rinzai. If we stay in our true center, 
Where is that? Is it inside? Outside? In the middle? Where is the center? you are can we put that in a way that meets our Rinzai practice Wherever you are, nowhere, yes, but. Here. All right. If we stay in our true center, then no matter where we go, anything we do is truth. But where is this center? Haraoshi asks. Rinzai said to his students, If I were to say what is most important, it is confidence. To have confidence in here. Right? This is What is lacking? True confidence, Harada Roshi says, arises when the mind that believes and the mind that is believed in are one. The Buddha said to Ananda, be a refuge unto yourself. Take the Dharma as your refuge. Be your own guiding light. Make the Dharma that guiding light, which we chanted earlier today as Ah, Tadipa, everybody says with confidence, right? If you understand this guiding light is within you, not inside, outside, or in the middle, but within you, true you, then no question about it. Here, light, refuge. And he says, the truth that pierces through the past, present, and future doesn't change. The truth that pierces through inside, outside, middle has no particular locus. So, of course, everywhere. Of course, nowhere. Unless we awaken to this truth of not holding on to anything, of no self and no other, 
we'll be confident only when things are going the way we want them to go. And this sounds familiar, right? Yes, I like Zen practice when I don't feel too sleepy or my (laughs) knee doesn't hurt or I'm not too hungry or I don't feel worried about my health or... Right. How many moments of your life are you going to say, okay, this is okay. This is all right. When things are going the way we want them to go. Of course, you know, things are always going the way they must go. Only we think they should be going differently. We make so much trouble for ourselves that way, don't we? And some extreme situation arises out of that. I was visiting this young man in the hospital yesterday morning. He thought he could try to make his life better or felt so anguished that he had to find something else. He is out of ICU now, and he will join us. But his heart stopped for an hour. To go through an experience like this at the age of 21, how profoundly changed he is. I've just finished a book, I think I told you, some of you, by a woman's last name is Haggerty, called The Fingerprints of God. And she looks at all these different ways in which people have tried to access the spiritual and the divide between science and spiritual understanding and how that divide is so arbitrary And how when people do actually find themselves in such an extreme as dying and returning, their whole life is completely different, completely new, completely appreciated and many, many mystical experiences, of course, she examines as a religion reporter for NPR. She began this study and talked to people who had been in alternate realities of various sorts, including returning from death.
The path of Zen is not limited in that way, Harada Roshi says, that way that we want it to go. We have to make use of our surroundings rather than being used by them. Circumstances, be the master wherever you go, Rinzai said. Then, wherever you are, things are as they truly are. Circumstances are just fine as they are. These are our circumstances, whether we quote-unquote like them or not. To make use of our circumstances or surroundings rather than being used by them, you might just look at that line and say, what is the secret to happiness? Hmm? To be the master of circumstances, or another way of putting it, to make use of. Some of you may remember what Joshu said about the 24 hours. Hmm? Yes? What? You are used by the 24 hours. I use the 24 hours. In other words, I am master of circumstances from the time I awaken in the morning to the time I go to sleep and all through my dreams. When you think about your monologue, your inner monologue, it's almost always one of complaining. Feeling used by the 24 hours or used by circumstances, oppressed by your surroundings or your feelings or what's going on. And I'm not putting that down. I'm not at all suggesting blame. But as Zen students, we can become aware of this and resolve not to be used, but to be the master wherever we are. We may be sleepy, we may be hungry, we may be in pain. Okay. This is Soen Roshi's favorite word. Okay. to say, okay, to our lives, to our surroundings. The limited confidence of the ego, to continue this passage, depends on an external position. This limited confidence, okay, things are going the way I like them to go, all right, I'll accept them, depends on an external position. When that position is gone, confidence is gone as well. Uh Uh-oh, I don't like it anymore. Instead of looking at others, we should look at ourselves. Instead of being used by others, we can be the master. And this is something really to remember for those of you who work with other people in your job. Maybe you are in academia and you feel very often you're being used by others. Instead of looking at others, we should look at ourselves. We can be the master. If we can see what's going on inside with our coworkers, each one of 
these people and inside ourselves. We just see it's the human condition. Well, yeah, of course you're miserable. Why not? Me too. Okay. We don't have to perpetuate it. That's the difference. Our states of mind are like any vehicle, he says. In order to function, they require someone able to use them. You can sit in the car, but if you don't know how to drive, you have to wait for someone else who does, right? No. Be your own master. Drive your own vehicle. When we completely become whatever comes along, he says, there's nothing left that can move us around. When we become our own vehicle, nothing left, nothing external, outside. Yet, I'm so sorry to have to read this part to you, but pay attention. Yet, With one superfluous idea, the devil of delusion appears. You may want to write this down. (laughs) With one superfluous idea. What is a superfluous idea? Hmm? A complaint is a good example. What else? What would be a superfluous idea? Yep. The devil of delusion appears right there. What about another superfluous idea? A thought. Any thought. Any thought has the potential to enchain us, to bring us to the next thought and the next thought and the next thought and the next thought. Superfluous. Anything you can put into words is superfluous, right? It. If you add anything to that word, it. Of course, we're usually saying it is something. Hmm? Okay, so... When that devil of delusion appears, even a bodhisattva becomes a devil's vehicle. We may identify someone as this wonderful bodhisattva, but with this one superfluous idea, that bodhisattva becomes a devil's vehicle. This is what happens if we look outside ourselves for the truth. So the last part of what he says, when we don't allow our mind to become divided, we can know this place of confident functioning and what it means to be that person of the way who relies on nothing. We are a master wherever we go. And wherever we are, things are as they truly are. So you see, the superfluous idea is when we take that apart, things are as they truly are, and divide it. 
things are this way, but they should be that way. Things are this way, but they used to be that way. Things are this way, but maybe someday they'll be that way. Oh, someday I will wake up. No. Things are as they are, already awake. This is attention. 